Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Hello. Can you hear us yet, G? You can hear us okay? Yeah, that's great. I can Perfect. hardly believe it's like this around the world. Yeah. It's amazing. It is, isn't yeah. it? Well, what yeah. time is it for you there in Vancouver? Uh, 4.30 in the afternoon. Oh, that's a nice, uh, pleasant time for you. Have you been working today? Yeah, definitely. Nice. (laughs) A good day. A good day. Actually, the days have been good. We call it Zoom dysmorphia. Yes. Yeah, well, (laughs) us injectors have become very busy as a result of that, which is in some ways good and some ways interesting and some ways disturbing so maybe we can get into some of that later yeah. um what's the situation like with the uh, covid and and everything where you guys are oh we're pretty awful we were doing much better before we had two new variants come mm-hmm. one was the brazilian variant one guy from montreal came to whistler to ski and infected the whole community oh jeez. so it's very infectious. And then uh, we've had also the Indian variant, the double and triple mutant wow. Indian variant, the Maharaja strain. That's pretty awful as well. So we're, we were at 1,200 cases a day two, de- two weeks ago, and now we've had another lockdown. So we're in our third lockdown. Wow. And uh, we're now down to about 800 cases a day. 830 cases a day. Right. So, uh, yes, a lockdown works, but it might have worked a lot better to stop the airlines. Yes. Well, and that's what Australia, thank God, has done. Just let everybody cope with what they've got. Yeah. Before you start the the whole uh, natural thing that everyone wants to do, including me, is to fly places. Yeah. And what about the demand, I guess, for people wanting treatments and so on? I know that during the lockdown period here, people were going, you know, I won't use the word crazy, but they were very excited about about things coming back, um, getting their treatments mm-hmm. again, this pent-up demand. Have you had that sort of similar things happening over there with you guys? Yeah, exactly the same. A, a lot of really crazed people. Like, <laughs> I can't stand how I look. Yeah. And uh, then there were a lot of people looking after two months of lockdown, a lot of people looking a little bit caved woman and caveman <laughs> yeah when uh, you guys are okay with the short hair but <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people not and uh, but we haven't had a medical lockdown mm. uh since uh we we had a medical lockdown starting in march of 2020 mid-march to may mm-hmm. so about six weeks uh and so i actually opened my office in my garden right because you can't get covid outside and it was a nice summer. And I I I built a new office, which everybody told me I was crazy to do. And so, you know, building a new office in a pandemic, you must be crazy. When someone says that to you, you know you're onto something. Yeah. Um, because 
all of a sudden you can get workers. So it only took six weeks to do the reno. Yeah. Uh, and so then I was up and running, uh, like so efficiently. I had some patients come in who said, you know, I like your new office, but really, I prefer your garden. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, bet, I bet people thought you were crazy when you first thought, hey, I can use Botox to treat facial wrinkles. That well, was, <laughs> it wasn't called Botox then, so we're going to get uh, into that. They, right. Yeah, that was. they were so uh, incensed that uh, we would consider using the world's most poisonous poison for something they thought of so, of so frivolous as a wrinkle. Yeah. There's nothing, nothing less frivolous than a wrinkle. Yeah, we agree. And, and we can get into maybe the emotional impact yeah. of, of our treatments that we do yeah. for people. I like that quote too. I can see that in inverted commas somewhere. Yeah. Nothing more frivolous than a wrinkle. Nothing, yeah. What did you say? Nothing more or nothing, nothing less? Nothing nothing less. Yeah, I like that. Nothing yeah. Put that on your website. That could be our, our tagline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Carruthers, we are sort of super, super excited. We, we've rolled out the red carpet for um, the sort of uh, pioneer of everything that we do, to be completely honest. So thank you for joining us. Um, maybe you could give our listeners who maybe sort of haven't heard the history of, of, of your background uh, and actually what you originally trained in, maybe just give us a bit of a, a short story of where it all began, if that's okay. Oh, sure. I, it really started because... Um, I'm an ophthalmologist uh, by training, and my husband, Alistair, is a dermatologist. And so I knew from his practice, I was not, I was, uh, I was uh, doing a strabismus, uh, you know, misaligned eyes as an mm-hmm. ophthalmologist, and, um, and lids, and surgery. And uh, I knew that Alistair, he had expressed his concern that he was na- not able to get a really excellent cosmetic result for the Brown lines because all he had was collagen, fibril, and fat. Nobody was doing surgical brow lifts in those days. Yeah. So there really was a limit to a limit in terms of the things that you could use to treat. So it was actually one of my then. Then he went down. He was accepted for a fellowship in San Francisco to learn how to do Mohs surgery for skin cancers. You of course have masses of those in Australia mm-hmm. and uh, know all about it. And so I went and learned at the same time in San Francisco from uh, Alan Scott at the Smith Kettlewell Institute of Visual Sciences. I learned about botulinum toxin and its use in straightening misaligned eyes, which I had been doing surgically. And then that started, what botulinum toxin does is it sucks you in with one indication. And then you get really excited about this other one. Well, the next one was benign essential blepharospasm. And these poor people, they, they have their eyes tight closed. They can't drive a car. They can't earn a living. They can't cross the street safely. It's, uh, and one of my first patients sent me a picture of himself driving. One of my first blepharospasm patients sent me a picture of himself driving his red convertible three days after I had treated his lids wow. with, uh, with Botox. And that was the difference. It was between being existing and living. That yeah. was the huge difference it made to that group because they had 20-20 vision, but their lids were in the way. Yeah. So I knew how to use this product because I had been doing the, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health in the United States, um, multi-center trial as one of the co-investigators with Alan Scott. So I knew how to use the product. 
And so one of my blessed spasm patients got angry at me. She said, you didn't treat me here. And I apologized to her and said, I'm so sorry. I didn't think you were spasming there. Oh, she said, I know I'm not spasming there. But every time you treat me there, I get this beautiful, untroubled expression. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, so then I knew that the penny dropped because I knew Alistair had been having trouble with the currently available fillers. And so I just went home and over dinner with our three young sons, you can imagine that's chaos <laughs> as usual, a young family. Uh, so the next day, um, we went into the office and our, we shared an office in those days. Our receptionist, Kathy Bickerton, had seen now several years of my blepharospasm and business patients coming in, always on time, always grateful, ever so polite. <laughs> they were really happy to have this new treatment. So when uh, we, and she had, she had really wonderful frown lines. And so at three o'clock in the afternoon, Kathy was frankly terrifying <laughs> with those frown lines as she got tired. So we said, Kathy, would you like to have your frown lines treated? And she said, sure, whatever. Uh, because she, she knew it was safe. Yeah. She knew it was effective. So um, I treated her frown lines. And a couple of days later, I had a complete convert in Alistair because there was this beautiful result, yeah. beautiful, smooth forehead, which he hadn't been able to do with the fillers. And the fillers actually made things worse in a way because you hadn't weakened the muscle at the same time so that when they frowned, it looked like sausages Yeah, yeah. Uh, there. So he was thrilled. So then it came, then we had to do a study. Well. If you can imagine trying to recruit patients for a study where they all know, they're bright, bright people, they all know that botulinum toxin is the most poisonous poison. <laughs> yeah. And so you say, well, would you like me to treat your, your frown lines with, uh, in, in our study with this, this lovely botulinum toxin? No, no, that's a poison. No, thank you. I don't want to do that. So then I realized at that point, people don't do what you do, what you, what you say. They only do what you do. So I got Alistair to inject my frown lines. So I was ready for them now. So they'd say, no, definitely not. It's a poison. And I'd say, what do you think? And I'd show them my picture before, and I'd sweep my bangs back so they could see now. And they'd say, oh, do it. Yeah, interesting. So that's how... That's how I learned how to get people to do things. But also, it, it took us several years to get 18 patients. Yeah. Because it took a leap of faith. It, it, it's not a commonly accepted idea at all. And in fact, when we gave our first paper in 1991 on those 18 patients at the American Society for Germ Surgery meeting in Florida, people, there was silence in the room. I mean, the pictures were wonderful. We had glorious evidence, but people just couldn't believe it. So they come up to us afterwards and say, that's a crazy idea that will go nowhere. And other things like, how can you possibly do such a terrible thing uh, using this awful poison on something so frivolous as wrinkles? You know, it, there's a certain amount of um, evidence that needs to be built up so people will actually believe. And that's where that's where using the scientific method really came to our rescue because otherwise we would have 
being thought of as maybe pariahs or witches or in, in you know, 500 years ago. Uh, but this time with the scientific method, you can show people it really works. Dr. Crothers, I've got so many questions and, and thank you for that insight because I think it's kind of amazing really that mm. that's literally where it started from. But you... I want to paint a picture for the listeners who, who obviously when they, you know, most of our listeners are injectors or they've had um, treatments before, so they get it, they, they know the protocol, they know the needle size, they know the dose, they know the cost, et cetera, et cetera. But you guys literally had nothing. So can you just take us back to what, what the botulinum toxin sort of looked like? Because back then it was unbranded. So what, what, what came in a vial? What dilution were you guys using? How did you inject it? How did you, how did you know where to inject it? Okay. Well, the vial came um, during the study. The vial came as 200 units with a green label on it. Mm -hmm. And it came as one or two vials only at a time. And I would go out to the airport and to pick it up. And customs would say, well, what is it? <laughs> and I'd say, oh, it's, it's a natural. It's just organic. And uh, they'd say, oh, okay, stamp the thing. I'd pay the duty and off I would go. Why did you have to go uh, to the airport? Uh, because um, because nobody really wanted to deliver it. They didn't know what it was. <laughs> right. So okay. I would just say it was organic, which it is, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so then um, it came with 200 units. And why we started with one cc per 100 units was because that's what we used in the study, mm -hmm. in the NIH study that we did with Alan Scott. So that's how we started with that. Now you're going to say, um, how did we figure out how much to use? Well, I knew how much because of treating blepharospasm patients. Yes. And really, this is like treating blepharospasm without treating the eyelids. Mm. And so then uh, we had to figure out where the muscles were and learn the anatomy. Because as an ophthalmologist, I knew all about the orbit yes. and the lids, but I didn't sort of know about the facial muscles. So then we got, um, because I did strabismus, it's quite different. The situation of the motor end plate with a strabismus, with, uh, say, for example, a medial rectus muscle, mm -hmm. turns the eye in. Uh, the end plates for the medial rectus, there is just one, and it's about an inch back. Right. So what you have to do is to use a needle. This is where Alan Scott and Art Jampolsky came in at Smith Kettlewell, because between them, they dreamed up and a needle that was uh, Teflon coated, so a 25 gauge needle that was Teflon coated, so you could record from the tip. Yeah. And an e and they had a colleague called Carter Collins, who put together a tiny black box, an EMG amplifier, not like the Assyrian door god amplifiers <laughs> that you see around in in neurology, but this was a little portable black box. So I would use that to slip the needle down the side of just with local anesthetic, slip the needle down in a subcutic conjunctival into the region of the motor end plate, so an, in, an inch back. And then I would get the patient to recruit the muscle. Yep. So they, I, would, I would get them to say, if it's a medial rectus, to turn the eye in. And then you hear this roar mm. as the muscle recruits. So we use the same thing on the facial muscles. So we figured out where to put the five injection sites using my strabismus um, EMG amplifier. So we figured out the procerus. That wasn't too difficult. 
We figured out the head of the corrugator, also not too difficult. But what was difficult was the corrugator doesn't stop here. It goes along to here. Yes. So where do you put it? Well, the simple thing is to say, oh, we'll just put it further along. Well, what happens then is you drop people's lids, and you also can drop people's brows. So then we thought, well, let's just distance ourselves a little bit. We know where the superorbital notch is. Let's go a centimeter above that. So we we owe a lot to our early patients who who loved us and trusted us and let us figure this out uh, on them. We also figured out how to treat their ptosis that we created uh, by using iotidine, yes, which is a glaucoma medication. And it works on Mueller's muscle deep in the lid so that if you did give them ptosis, you can actually disguise it with a drop of iopidine. How to charge for it? Uh, that was very <laughs> difficult because we had no idea. But we more or less decided that people could afford, say, $300 for a treatment if it, they were willing to go out and spend $1,500 on handbags. They for sure could afford $300 for treatment. And that turned out to be the early cost that people were able to afford. But as it became more popular and you started treating more regions and using more units, obviously the number of units used and the cost uh, actually dramatically increased. And was Allegan making the, the product then before it became branded as Botox or was it a different supplier? No, same. Same Same company. Okay, right. Same company making it. Actually, it was made, that's not quite true, because um, Alan Scott got, he formed a company called, that he called Oculinum. Right. And he actually bought the neuromodulator from Ed Shantz in Madison, Wisconsin. And so Ed would ship the toxin. He made it in carboys in his lab in Madison, Wisconsin. And he shipped it surface mail in a brown paper package <laughs> to Alan <laughs> <laughs> in San Francisco. Now, nowadays, they've got a jet. It's made somewhere in California, which nobody knows where. I think three people know where. And uh, it's shipped in a jet to Ireland. Yeah. It's the bo- what we call the Botox bottling plant. Yes. But the actual, it's actually made in uh, California. But uh, in those days, it was made in Madison, Wisconsin, and shipped to Allen, and then Allen, uh, Allen um, used it yeah. on his early studies. Now, right at the top of the conversation, you used the word poison about three times, and I know that um, Jake understands what that means, and I know the listeners that are medically trained and, and nurses and so on understand. But I guess for people that are listening, patients um, who have heard that word and gone, hold on a second, uh, poison, that doesn't sound good. Could you put that into some to some context for us? Because it does sound scary oh, yeah. unless you sort of got the background information. Yeah. Yeah, great question. I mean, let's look at um, if you give a wheelbarrow of some drug to somebody, that's a poison. But if you have a very tiny measured dose of that same product, you know how much you're giving and you actually understand dose ranging, it's a drug. Uh, that's, the, that's the thing that is so important about neuromodulators that you need to know who's making your neuromodulator and you need to know uh, who's approved it. And you need to know that the neuromodulator that you're using is what says it is. There's a lot of counterfeit out there. Mm. 
there's um, Andy Pickett, who's a very famous uh, neuromodulator researcher in the UK. Andy did a study on five vials that he sourced off the internet, and they came in at between zero and 280 units of neuromodulator in the vial. Wow. So unless you know, you the doctor, unless you know and trust the vial source, uh, you have no idea what you're putting into people. Yeah, absolutely. That's the importance of, of there being uh, an oversight so that there's safety. Yeah, that's really important. And I think a lot of patients, for whatever reason, always seem to, to, to go on price when, when they make a decision about getting something injected into their face. And, you know, when you see all these sort of deals online and, you know, it really sort of seems a bit unscrupulous. So mm. just from a safety aspect, I think that, you know, exactly what you said is right. You want to find a reputable injector and they can give you the batch number if you so wish to, to go home. And, and then you've sort of got a bit of um, accountability with, you know, with your treatment as a medical treatment yeah i think we're pretty lucky here in australia we're pretty heavily regulated there's only a handful of products on the market and the tga are quite stringent in terms of their approval process but i think in other parts of the world mm -hmm. we've sort of spoken about things might be a little more lax yeah so. definitely gene what was the um situation or, or or the state of the industry back then you mentioned your husband was sort of playing with collagen and fat injections but it seems quite rudimentary at the time so presumably the industry didn't really exist it was just derms sort of utilizing sort of some other tools but it wasn't really a developed injectable industry is that right oh yeah i think you could safely say that botox started the whole industry yeah because before that, uh, there was such a lot of negative, uh, there was a lot of stigma to people wanting to do anything cosmetic. You should just be the way you are. You should just accept weight the way you are. Uh, but people don't, and people want to improve themselves. But there really wasn't, apart from surgery, uh, there was a laser that you could use to treat vascular lesions, mm -hmm. pulse dye laser. Um, there was um, liposuction. And uh, there was uh, the aforementioned fillers. But largely, there wasn't anything that was really easy and really safe and really available to everybody. Because in those days, it was the Elizabeth Taylor mm. who would have a facelift. Yeah. It wasn't something that, you know, Mrs. Jones, your next-door neighbor, had done. Mm. And uh, nowadays, nowadays, the uh, whole... Industry really depends on neuromodulators. When everyone got shut down, the first thing that came back was neuromodulators. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that it's the, it's the linchpin of the whole industry. Yeah. Why do you think there's such a stigma with cosmetic injectables with people who'll say, oh, you should just accept the way you are or you're being too vain, but if someone changes their hair colour, they paint their nails, they go to the gym, they get a spray tan, they wear nice clothes, why is that all okay? But having cosmetic treatments, which I guess when you sort of pull it back to its, it, the driving force behind people wanting to do those things is because they want to improve themselves. Why such a stigma with injectables? Yeah, it's a really great question because there really shouldn't be. And uh, I think that nowadays the stigma has more or less gone away. There's a lot of difference in how different generations uh, cope with this issue. For example, the older patients are very private. They won't tell anybody that they've had something done. The baby boomers are a little bit more open, 
but largely they don't want to give you a Google review because they don't want their friends to know. Okay. Is that fair? Yes. Is that in Australia as well? Yeah. So then you hit on the wonderful, and I absolutely adore them, Generation X and Y. They are digital natives. They are transparent. They will talk about everything they've had done uh, to, to the world. And they will write you a Google review and they will, they will be quite open with their friends and what they've had done. And they will tell their friends, you really need to go and have that done because you've got this, that, and the other. So I think that the whole thing has changed with the different attitude of Generation X and Y. And I think the other thing that's changed and the reason Generation X and Y feel quite relaxed and happy to have these treatments done it's because of all the science that's been done. Yep. All the science that has been done on their parents, yeah. you know, on, and grandparents. Uh, the data is what Generation X and Y love. They believe data. They're with it all the time. It feels natural to them. Whereas the boomers and the post-war generation uh, actually believed marketing because there wasn't the data yet. Mm. So now there's the data and now everybody can feel, well, I, there's this study that showed, I get this all the time. I saw this study that showed X, Y, Z. What do you think about that? They're well-informed. And I mm. think that because they're well-informed, they feel more relaxed about, about having the treatment. And because they know the treatment is safe, they can talk about it. Yeah. Uh, Jake, I, like you probably can relate to this as well. I mean, we've both been involved in industry for similar periods of time in different capacities, obviously, but, um, I remember very early on patients would come in and there'd be cash under the table. It's almost like you're doing a drug deal. You're <laughs> expecting the police to turn up or something. Did you get that as well? Did get that. Uh, yeah. When I first started, um, yeah, like you said, it felt like a drug deal and cash in a brown paper bag and don't tell anyone. Have you got the stuff? Don't text me. Don't call me. I'll call you. It was very much yeah. like that. And, and to be honest, there's still one or two yeah. that are still like that. And yeah. I'm curious to know. Sort I of, had one like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious yeah. to know, you know, you've been doing this for over 30 years, Jean. So yeah. how have you broken down those barriers with your oldest patients? Or, or are they still like that? They're still like that. Right. Yeah, interesting. They're still, they're still, uh, my oldest patient is in her 90s. Right. Wow. And uh, she's still, her whole, she doesn't tell anybody. She's gorgeous. Uh, she's always, she's always perfectly manicured. Mm. Everything looks just totally great. And her family say, gosh, we have no idea how you look so great. <laughs> and she says, I don't either. You know, she doesn't tell them. Yeah. So uh, to each to each their own. But I think it's um, an interesting generational change in, um, in understanding and therefore in attitude. Yeah. Is your patient zero still around, your, your old receptionist? Is she still yes, around she to is. tell the yeah. tale? Mm-hmm. And does she still have yes, treatments? No, she doesn't. She said she only did it to please us. Ah. <laughs> wow, that's, that's 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 loyalty right there. Willing to yeah, under, willing to undergo the first lady. treatment. Yeah. I was going to ask her to sort of co-join us on yeah. the on the podcast. The first <laughs> oh, ever yeah. person who'd yeah. you know had it done deliberately. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's still uh, she's still around. She lives in Penticton, which is a very beautiful resort town in the interior of British Columbia. Yeah, I spoke to her. Oh, well, I last spoke to her probably a year ago when I was trying to get her onto uh, a different, um, uh, actually, it was it was an interviewer from New York who wanted to talk to her. So she said, yeah, whatever, same as she, she's a really nice lady. That's nice. And you can phone her, yeah. I've got a question for both of you, um, and this is 
Oh, I'll, I'll ask you first, Jean. Has there any, ever been any studies into some of the claims that I've heard many patients make over the years about when they have their, their Botox treatment, they feel better, their mood is better. Is there any sort of evidence, even if it's anecdotal, that having these treatments causes some sort of positive feedback loop or it sort of changes your mood at all? I'll let Jean take oh, that because she knows a lot about this. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, is the answer. Uh, the very first person to to talk about that was a dermatologist called Eric Finzi. Right. Uh, and uh, his associate, Dr. Wasserman. And they did had a small study of 10 people who were depressed. And they treated their glabella with Botox and 9 out of 10 got better. Oh, that's really amazing. So now there's a study from Wales and now there's uh, a study from Switzerland, and now there's studies from South America, and now there's a phase two study uh, that was uh, put together by Allergan, which just was reported, I think, within the last six months. And they actually decided there wasn't enough difference between the, on the study, between the um, placebo group and the treatment group. But I looked at the study, and I think they didn't give enough in the uh, and they, it's exactly the same thing that happened in the migraine study. There wasn't a huge difference between the treatment group and the placebo group. So the thing is, my average dose for migraine is probably 135 units. And theirs was a lot lower than that in the migraine study. And it was the same thing. It was too low, in my opinion, uh, in the depression study. So I think it needs to be done again because I think that it is incredible what it does to people's mood in terms of depression, but probably even more important, self-esteem. Um, you know, uh, Steve um, uh, in uh, Diane in uh, Chicago did a study a few years ago showing that it Im improved self-esteem. There are self-esteem scales. And then he's just published one right now that just came out in the Aesthetic Surgery Journal last week, and it's about uh, mood it's about self-esteem improvement in the time of COVID. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that it uh, it dramatically improves people's mood in the time of COVID. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So I think that um, I think that no question it's very very good for um, people's. Um, I don't know. It, it's I think it improves your survival if you feel happy and good about things. Gives mm. you more energy to say well. I can't see the answer to that particular problem, but I feel good, and I'm going to search around till I find that answer. Yeah, you know that's the kind of that's the kind of drive that you need to make a success of the world. And I think Botox. Also, you mentioned the um, feedback theory. Yeah, that when people look look down, other people cross the street to avoid them. Mm. You know, how does that make you feel? And um, yeah, I think there's no question that that getting rid of the negative things that you're not feeling that are displayed in your face allows you to be more honest about your emotions. I have to say, I think it gets to the crux of the issue why it's so popular. And, and you actually said it with your first patient. She said, I get this wonderful, untroubled look. Well, immediately she noticed it's, yes, the wrinkles went, but she 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 sort of voiced an emotional impact of the treatment. Yeah, And so, yeah. you know, when our patients come and they joke, oh, I don't want to get addicted to Botox, they're not addicted to Botox, they're addicted to the feeling of looking better. So yeah, and feeling better. Yeah, and feeling better. And people yeah. saying, wow, don't you look 
refreshed or or, or less angry. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's it's the change of how people interact with them that they like. It's, mm. it, I mean, yes, yeah. the lines disappear, but it's the impact of that, that that's more interesting. I think. Well, when you uh, make a, a facial expression, I think they say that if you if you smile, it's hard to be unhappy. So maybe by stopping the negative. Uh, emotions being able to be displayed that it, it sort of somehow stops that emotion from being as powerful yeah you don't reinforce it yeah. by by not being able to manifest it i guess yeah yeah now gene yeah. i'm really interested to know so you, you this was 1987 i think you did your first um patient in your rooms and then it took you several years you said it you recruited about 18 patients you did your first study with alistair how did you get to the point where it became branded with, with Allergan as cosmetic Botox? I'm really interested. Uh, yes, they were very, very interested, but very, very reluctant mm. at first. And uh, they, um, they actually were going to do a study. Um, it actually worked out that we ended up persuading them to do a study or two studies, which were 010 and 023. They were single dose studies, and but they were uh, they were elongated studies over time yeah. to show that not just one treatment but several treatments were were safe. Uh, Twenty units was chosen as the registration dose, um, and it was interesting in the stud in the meeting the investigator meetings. Uh, there was a big fight over how how would we dilute a hundred unit vial, and so uh, Alistair and I were at one end with one cc, please, <laughs> and other people were at the way at the other end, ten cc's. Ten, wow! And in between a five, three, two and a half, one and a half, you know, you name it, and finally two and a half was the saw off. So that's how two and a half cc's get came to be the registration um, dilution. Yeah. I still I still use one CC. And um, uh, so that that was after those studies were done. Uh, and that was that was a multi-center study in the States. And they chose the Allergan chose the investigators and they chose a number of investigators who had never injected before. So that's why in the uh, that's why in the product insert there's such a high tosis incident. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about that. It seems very not like our our own reality. We we don't have a one percent tosis rate, or I certainly don't. No. You don't have a you don't have a three percent either. <laughs> and uh, this was because of one site that didn't actually sort of know what they were doing. So that's interesting too. Because subsequent studies that uh, Allergan have, I mean, the tosis rate is negligible. Yeah. Uh, as it is in, in most people's clinical practice. Mm. What did, um? well, I'll ask the question a different way because my business brain wants to ask this question, but I'm trying to ask it in the most uh, delicate way possible. You've come up with this amazing application for this <laughs> product that has literally changed the entire world. It's worth billions of dollars. How I'm trying to think out of You're trying to say, what did you earn from well, this? Well, you had, I mean, like, if I came up with an invention like that, I'd be like, how do you actually go and tell Allegan, look, I've got this amazing application that's going to make you squillions of dollars, but, uh, you know, what am I going to get out of it? How do, how do, <laughs> it's, a, it's an awkward question to ask, but I have to ask it. Yeah, we tried to patent it. Right. Uh, it was such a great idea. 
Uh, we went to a law firm here in Vancouver, and they said, we don't know. So we went to a law firm in Toronto, and they said, well, it's not really different enough from blepharospasm to patent. Can you believe it? Oh, wow. And so, you know, those were busy days. There were three little boys. I was on staff at five hospitals to get enough surgical time. Um, you know, I've, knowing what I know now, I would have gone on to some more law firms. Mm. And uh, just pursued it until I got a patent. Uh, I've had another patent, uh, which was for the mouth crown, uh, which Allergan bought from us. So um, that's, um, you know, lesson learned. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes, great question. So what would have happened to us if we had had a successful patent? Yeah. And then would we have had a fleet of 15 Learjets. Yeah, and, you would have, you know, would have been bigger than Pablo Escobar. Yeah, you'd be living next door to Elon <laughs> Musk. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. There you go. Um, I don't know. Uh, all I know is we didn't get a patent. And in the real world, we've had a tremendous lot of uh, interest and fun and great friends and great times with uh, the use of this product. Still, uh, Still ongoing. It's not just like Last December, oh no, not last December, December of 2019, Allergan invited us to join them on the floor of the Stock Exchange at in, in New York uh, to celebrate 30 years wow. of a product, 30 years. Well, in most uh, S&P 500 companies last 21 years. Yes. So already we're at 32 years. So, you know, and it's not slowing down. So... I think that we can look at a product that grows at 15% per year and goes on and on and on doing that as being something that's pretty safe to tie your uh, tie yourself to uh, because it's just something that, okay, what else can you do with it? Well, now you can treat atrial fibrillation with it. What you do is you inject it into the fat pads, the retroatrial fat pads. Uh, now you can... Now you can treat glandular problems with it, including, obviously, everyone knows sweating, but you can uh, reduce the size of other glands with it. Uh, You can treat depression. You can treat enhanced self-esteem. I think there are many more things that are coming out that we're going to really have a lot of fun with in in the years to come. But basically, the bottom line is going to be people need to look good to feel good. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually the mantra of our podcast, Look Good, Feel Good. So thanks for plugging us. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just wheel you back to um, the 20 units and the frown and 2.5 mil dilution? Because that's, you know, well, certainly in Australia, that's normal. That's what we teach. And, you know, I I would guess that 90% of injectors do that. But you said that you use a 1 mil dilution. So Mm -hmm. tell us your thinking there and, and why do you do that? Because it's more concentrated. Yes. Well, uh, first of all, uh, if you use the tuberculin syringe mm-hmm. and the thirty gauge needle, the half inch thirty gauge needle, if you use um, if you use a one cc dilution, you lose seven units in the hub of that needle. Yes. So we didn't want to increase to the two and a half cc dilution because we did a dose-ranging study in terms of a volume, a dilution-ranging study, 10, 5, 3, and 1. And 10 and 5 were like you were dissecting their foreheads off uh, with, the, <laughs> with the dilly winds. Uh, so we didn't want to do that because if you hurt people, they won't come back. Right? Yeah. 
so uh, we wanted to carry on with the one cc dilution. So what we did was, it was Alistair, actually. We had to give him complete credit. He figured out if you use a 1cc dilution and you use the 30-unit Becton Dickinson diabetic syringe, yeah. commonly available in every pharmacy, one diabetic unit is one Botox unit. Yeah. And so you can see that even without your glasses, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're sort of looking at these tiny little lines on the tuberculin syringe thinking, how do I get one unit out of that? It's really, um, it's really so simple. As that's, we were just very simple about it, that's all. And you lose uh, the beauty of the Becton Dickinson 30-unit diabetic syringe is that there's no hub. Yes. So there's no loss of product. At a 1cc dilution, put a 1cc in the vial and you get 100 units out. I always wanted to know who came up with the BD syringe for, for Botox, and it was your husband. So, yeah. yeah, amazing. And do you still do the same technique now? Or, or I mean, yeah. most injectors yeah, would. I, I've actually found a 32 gauge syringe, which is the same size as the BD syringe, but it's just, you know, a smaller caliber needle. So it's slightly more comfortable. Yeah. But um, yeah. have you played Beautiful. around with things like that? Yes. Uh, actually, since the dose, uh, I don't know if you, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was part of a podcast. Uh, with Sabrina Fabi and oh, yeah. uh, Steve Diane, of the high dose, of the high dose one. Yes. So the thing that was so interesting about that study, those three studies, and, and it was only uh, not including Revance because it's not approved yet. The Daxi is not approved yet, but it was the Mertz product, Zeman, mm-hmm. Allergan's product, Onobotulinum toxin, and then the Galderma product, um, Disport. Each of those studies have the dilution. Each of those studies, if you look at those studies, the curve for their registration dose shifted sharply to the right. So you've got essentially another 30 days out of 20 units of Botox by diluting it with 1.25 cc's in right. 100 units. Because it's less dilute, it's and more concentrated. Was, it was less dilute, and so it stays in the area. And that was so, that was really true of the uh, Mertz product and also the Galderma product. In the Galderma study, uh, there was a surprise though, and that was that 60% of their placebo patients were very, very happy with the result. <laughs> right. I want to know what was in that placebo. I know, right? I, sus- I suspect what happened is that maybe at one of their sites, somebody confused the products. That's happened before in studies. That was one heck of a placebo. Yeah, 60%. Anyway, to give a 60%. <laughs> Crazy. But it was uh, really, there. Uh, John Joseph, who is the lead author in that study, has a great way of describing what you get by, by, reducing, by reducing the dilution or increasing the concentration. He calls it big dog on a short leash. Yeah. Which says it. I mean, so I've actually been... Um, been actually um, concentrating things a little more, particularly, you know, a half cc dilution in a vial when you're injecting men. Mm-hmm. If you want to inject 100 units in a man, why not make it really comfortable for him? And for sure, it's going to last longer than if you diluted it with your full, one. in my case, one cc dilution. Uh, it's, you can get a longer lasting product simply by using less dilution, which is good for everybody. 
Except Pac-Man. Allegan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the other suppliers. Yeah. <laughs> All the others. All the others. Yeah. They're like, shut up, Gene, shut up. <laughs> well, you say that, but, but, but actually it, it may be something that should be or could be looked into more formally because yeah. with these new novel toxins coming on the market that potentially deliver longevity, well, how amazing would it be to continue with your existing product but make it last longer? Maybe that's what they've done. They've just changed the dilution. <laughs> well, no, because <laughs> I think it's a different maker who's making the longer-lasting one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think that's really... Um, it, and, and I think this is, I think, a COVID thing. Because if COVID hadn't come along, then the other company, the Daxibotulinum Toxin Company, would have had their their inspection yes and they would have been out there in the market so i feel that i feel badly for them because they've done all the research they just needed to have their product their, their excuse me their plant yeah inspected and yet it couldn't happen because of covid so yeah, I, was, I do feel for them i was going to come on to the the novel toxins later but seeing as we're talking about it let's just carry on so what do you think the the market is demanding for for toxins i mean is it necessary or is it going to be super popular to have one that lasts six months instead of three months or four months i don't know well i think yeah for parts of the market it's essential uh what parts what about men Mm -hmm. men hate coming in every three four months men will come in happily every six months uh what about people who travel you know they they um they live somewhere else but they like their doctor over there so they need to come in but they can't come every three months Mm. Uh, what about people who have really awful dystonias and it's very difficult for them to get into a doctor what about people who have um, uh, other access issues that they just want it to last for longer yes Uh, I I think that it would be quite I mean, I had a really interesting, uh, I was part of a discussion uh, with a British British group of expert injectors. And it was really interesting that uh, quite a few of them actually raised the thing that they really didn't want a neuromodulator that would last longer than three, four months because it reduced the contact time yeah. with their, their patients. And maybe the patients would go somewhere else or maybe they would not come back to buy the product from them. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of really good business reasons why you want to see people three, yeah. four times a year. Yes, yeah. uh, or even people. And yeah. maybe, but then, then there's the other group of people who say, well, I'm really busy and my filler lasts for six months. So that's what I want my near modulator to last six months as well. Mm. Yeah, maybe I and all injectors are just used to the three times a year or sometimes four times a year. So maybe I can't see... Yeah, you know the, the the application yet, but maybe you're right. Maybe people want to come less, but mm. um, also yeah. people with needle phobias. But they, don't, but they don't know it. Yeah. Well, I don't think I don't think the market will suffer for having Daxi come along. Yeah. Because it is a fantastic product. Yeah. Because uh, I did all the research with it and published uh, a number of the papers. I think it's an absolutely superb um, new addition to the neuromodulator world. Mm. And I'm excited to get it in Canada, which we probably won't get for another probably year, maybe year and a half, two years. Uh, But it is a great product. And if you get it, uh, you'll be really happy with it. And that's branded under Revance, is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. 
So I don't know what the FDA will allow them to call it as a um, um, brand name. Because okay. I know that Dysport came out and they were going to call it Reloxin. Mm. Mm. You know, uh, that makes sense, right? Yeah. It's relaxing. And the FDA said, nope, you have to call it something else. So it's, uh, you can't, I can't possibly second guess the FDA. Yeah, no, of course. I, it's, it's an interesting question because the word Botox has become, you know, it's a noun, it's a verb, it's, everyone knows yeah. it. Even if you're 100 years old, you've probably heard the word Botox. Uh, mm-hmm. So some amazing branding yeah. and uh I don't know. I don't know why it's become well, such a... It's become the word to describe anything cosmetic treatment. People go, I'm getting Botox in my lips. I want Botox in my cheek. It's just become the term that people use to describe anything to do with cosmetic injectables. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Kleenex. Yes, exactly. That, that kind of Great thing. Great branding. Yeah. Or Hoover. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What, um, what sort of pushback or barriers did you sort of face from your colleagues when you and Alistair started, you know in waving the flag for, for these types of treatments or being the people that were pioneering it. Mm-hmm. What did the rest of the industry sort of say and how did you deal with that? Well, all our colleagues here thought we were crazy. Mm. Um, and uh, then there was this thing about surgery that, well, surgery is way better than Botox. We can do everything <laughs> with surgery that you say you can do with with Botox. So let's start with the, that sort of attitude that, you know, I, I'm too busy with surgery. I wouldn't have time to add that sort of thing to my, my career. Uh, so anyway, I do surgical brow lifts. Well, surgical brow lifts don't always make you look natural. If you just look at yourself in the mirror and then just lift your eyebrows up five millimeters. <laughs> no one will ever obey you again. That's good spoking. <laughs> your kid will your kid will never come home when you tell your kid to come home because you've lost all moral suasion with your eyebrows up around here. Uh, so the beauty of the of the neuromodulator brow lift was that it was a natural and b not overdone. Mm. So that was. That was really, really helpful. And then they started to realize that a lot of surgical brow lifts, and I used to do them, endoscopic brow lifts, they come down. And they actually come down in about six months. And when they come down, they get this awful squirrely action here because the muscles that have been, you've extirpated, you thought, the corrugator and the procerus. But guess what? Some of it grew back. Mm -hmm. And it looks awful. So what do you have to do? Do you go back and do another surgery on a patient who's really annoyed that they went through that procedure and that recovery time and look what they've got now? They're not going to let you near them again. Well, there's a little perfect place for a neuromodulator. So that's when surgery started realizing, well, it might be helpful uh, in to help with tidy up things like when you do a facelift and you've still got deep uh, platysmal bands here, you can just melt them away with some Botox. So, you know, they started to understand that. What really happened was 2008 with the financial crisis. And suddenly, everybody that's doing cosmetic surgery to the body, uh, whether it's abdominoplasties or breasts or liposuction in general, uh, nobody wanted it done. Nobody could afford it. 
the only thing people wanted was neuromodulators mm-hmm. in order because there was no downtime and they could carry on and earn a living. They didn't have time for downtime. So one of my friends, uh, my dear friend, Steve Fagan, who's an oculoplastic surgeon in Florida, Steve said that for years he'd been teaching neuromodulator treatment to the plastic surgery meetings. And he said, suddenly, all the guys who'd been saying, nah, we would never do that. We're way too busy to do that. All of a sudden, their abdominoplasty and body procedure practices have melted away. He said they were all in the front row of my, <laughs> my, my courses at these meetings. So that was really interesting that, you know, the, the, the economy sort of dictated a new look for all those people. Uh, so I think that the, the main groups that have really, really grabbed the idea of um, neuromodulators and run with it are the derms. Yeah. They have such amazing, wide-open minds. Uh, it's not, we've always done it this way, we're not changing. It's, oh, that's a great idea. How do I incorporate that into my practice? And so that is that open-minded attitude of dermatology, I think is why uh, Alistair was so successful, not only because he's an awesome teacher and uh, has an enormous track record, uh, but he was really successful. His first course at the American Academy, I think there were five people, and then they had 700. You know, that's the, that's the, the, the way an idea really takes hold. So, uh, and also there was such good science coming out about it. When did you guys move from the glabella, sorry, glabella and start doing frontalis, crow's feet, DAOs, masseters, and, and all the other sort of still off-label areas? Probably around uh, 2005, we were getting really brave because mm-hmm. we were doing. Um, we did the first dose ranging studies ever in women and men, uh, 20, 40, 60, 80 in men. Just we just about died how brave we were doing 80 units in men. <laughs> now I do 100, 120 without thinking. Um, uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 in women, and then we started looking at uh, patient reported outcomes around them. And we started realizing that patients were happier when you treated not just their their glabella, but also their horizontal forehead lines and the glabella together. Yeah. Because we used to think, oh, well, let's treat the horizontal forehead lines. But then you drop their forehead. Yeah. You drop their brow. And now they not only look angry, they are angry. <laughs> and then if you say to that person whose brow you dropped by only treating their frontalis, Okay, well, um, we can fix it just by treating your brow depressors with Botox. Oh, no way they're letting you near them ever again. It's much better to coat. And there's lots of phase three studies showing that this is uh, really the the happiness factor, the patient-reported outcome success factor. It's much better if you treat the entire upper face at the same time. Uh, was anything that you guys did, did you push the boundary too far in any situations where, you know, your complication rate went up and up and then you step back or any other areas of the face where we don't traditionally treat that you guys did? Well, I think we, we realized around the mouth you had to be very delicate because uh, we talk now about the lip lips, but in those days, actually the idea of treating the vertical lip lines was uh, Paco Perez in Mexico City. Uh, That was his idea. And he was right. You need to treat 
um, very delicately around the mouth. Uh, it was our idea, the depressor anguli oris, that's that patent. Uh, and then we started treating platysma. Yeah. And we were, we were all initially treating platysma anteriorly until we realized that uh, Fred Brandt was treating, uh, the, he was treating uh, the anterior uh, platysmal bands with 100 units well, that's and a lot. more. And uh, so we went to, this was when the year of the Academy was in San Francisco. So we came home and I handed Alistair a vial and I said, do my neck. So he did my neck, uh, a la Fred. And I could not lift my head off the mat when yeah. I was doing crunches. I couldn't lift my head out of the sink at the hairdresser <laughs> because you need these guys. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what Ada Trindade de Almeida in South America and I figured out was that you don't want to treat these anterior bands because they're just in front of the muscles of deglutition. Yes. That was the other thing I had with my 100-unit vial treatment was I couldn't swallow. Oh, jeez. That's a weird feeling. Uh, you have to swallow extremely carefully, particularly water. Really, uh, uh, I, when people say I have trouble swallowing, uh, it's like that, that's a big thing, yeah. um, having experienced it. So now what Ara Trindade de Almeida and I do is uh, here's the platysma coming from your, um, your clavicles up in, like a big sheet investing all the muscles in the lower face. And now we know you treat the pars mandibularis and the pars modularis mm -hmm. of the platysma and forget the front. And it gives you a most lovely jawline. It's one of our most popular indications. Do you still call so it the Nefertiti lift for your patients or is it the gene lift? Uh, <laughs> well, I think uh, the Nefertiti lift was using a lot less units than I use. Um, Phil Levy in... in um, Phil Levy, very brilliant. I love his paper. And yes, I do call it the Nefertiti lift, but it should probably be called the Levy lift. Yeah. Because it is, uh, it was his idea. We just sort of expanded on it. Right. What about um, things like preserved saline versus regular saline? I know that some clinics here in Australia just use regular saline. They say they can't tell the difference. It is quite a bit more expensive. What are your thoughts on that and what do you use? Oh, I use preserved saline. Right. Much it's more way better. It's it's uh, way more alkaline, and you know, let's that old saying: if you hurt them, they won't come back. Yeah. So yeah. it's really, I think it's important using, as you're saying, tiny needles and uh, not injecting acidic toxins. If you've ever injected myoblock, botulinum toxin B, you'll know what acidity does to people. I remember one patient, a, a Japanese gentleman, who was really stoical. And we want to, we were, we were using botulinum toxin B and I've never seen such a, such a change in a man. He was, it was in, he was in agony. When you inject pH 5.5, which is what myoblock is, it's really uncommonly, um, and you don't want to do that to any patient. And uh, so, uh, that's, I think probably largely why myoblock hasn't taken off. Well, I was going to say, why did you use it in the first place? I mean, I've, I've never used it. I, I know it's an alternative uh, in those really yeah. rare circumstances where you may develop, um, you know, like a immune, immunity to type A, but yeah. why did you use it? Yeah, well, we were just part of the study. Uh -huh. It was, um, we, were, we were working with Solstice Neurosciences out of uh, San Diego, and we were doing the study, trying to figure out 
the dosage because it's quite different. And I think we got to 500 units uh, per, and then the company pulled the study. Uh, you have to use a lot more units in it with of B to get the same results that you get with A. So, I mean, along those lines, uh, E has just, um, has Bartolinum toxin E or Bonti, that company has just been bought by Allergan. Yeah. And they're going for uh, aesthetic approval. And also, I think it's going to be an amazing product for physiatry. So, for example, you've got someone who has a knee replacement and um, they give them uh, some uh, opioids and they get addicted to them. Mm. Dreadful. I mean, that's a terrible thing. Whereas you could just inject botulinum toxin E around that knee joint and get rid of the pain. So you could do the physio and get the knee moving again. And then you don't have the opioid problem. So do you think that toxin type E is going to be more for medical use or do you see it being utilized cosmetic? Oh, both. I mean, how many people do you know who say, I don't really want to do it, but I want to look good for my son's wedding? Well, you do, but but then when you actually chat about it, what they're really saying is, I'm a bit scared and I've never done this before, but actually they want a longer term result they don't want a two-week yeah. lasting toxin yeah but it's a good way for people to dip their toe in the water they may if they don't like the way they look then it's gone in a few weeks yeah i mean from your you're, you're the clinic owner how, i mean you know i'm yeah. sure you don't have patients who say no i'm not going to go ahead they eventually do yeah it. there's just i guess a longer period of time where people will consider it before they actually get it done but i think particularly for your more conservative patients um you know, people like actors. And so I just think there, there are segments or small pockets of the market that would benefit from yeah. having that option. I think I'm right in saying it's rapid onset as well. Um, I don't know yeah. exactly how quick. How Definitely. quick is it? Oh, it's within 24 hours and it lasts for two weeks. So it'll so be interesting. You forgot, you forgot about that event and yeah. you could just get fixed up. Well, it'll be interesting because, you know, again, it's a, a paradigm shift. So those people who do get complications, normally they kind of come on over a week or two and, you know, and they get that slightly heavier brow or lid in those bad circumstances. And so it almost gives the patient a bit of time to get used to it. But if suddenly they wake up overnight and their brow is down, I think that anger goes up. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Or, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, how, how often with like patients that you're treating for the first time, do they have to come back in for an adjustment or someone's got unusual anatomy? Is there potentially advantages of having something that's rapid onset that wears off quickly so you can actually perfect their dose and then you go, right, we've got it nailed. We know exactly what's going to happen here. You've sort of, you know, you've got also, it's almost like a safety net where yeah. you've treated them with a temporary product. Then you can go in with something that's more long lasting. Well, I think the best application yeah. for exactly what you just said, David, is training. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for those people who don't really know what Botox or, or a toxin does and, and you do a treatment on some models, yeah. get them back the next day and look. Yeah. And then you can learn f- from yeah. that immediately rather than waiting two weeks and never really following up because the model's yeah. gone on holiday and so on. So I think for yeah. training, it would be yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. And w- were you involved in, in, in the research of that gene as well or not? No, I was a consultant okay. for it. But it, the, uh, the head author, the lead author was Steve Yolen. Mm-hmm. We'll have to get Steve Yolen on uh, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, uh, he's, um, he's done great work with it. So uh, I, think that, I think they'll get approval. 
And I hope, I think it's really good that we'll have now a way to have longer lasting neuromodulators and shorter acting. Mm, yeah, it's becoming and more we, bespoke. I think it's good for, it's good for everyone. Yeah. I mean, not to get too scientific, but what's the difference? Like, how is it working quicker, and why is it not lasting as long? Well, it's a botulinum toxin E, mm-hmm. so it's it, it has a different uh, mode of action within the cytosol. Right. I think um, I, I think it's um, it cleaves SNAP twenty five at a different place than Botox does. Right. Okay. So that it, it's uh, it does. It does weaken SNAP25, but for some reason, the cell can put SNAP25 back together again mm. uh, faster after E than A. Mm. What type Good of question? What brands of toxin are you currently using? What do you have in your clinic, and and sort of why? In terms, of, I guess, of using different products for different things or different patient types. Yeah. Well, I like. Um, I really love Botox, and I really love Xeomin. Yeah. Mm. I have both of those in. Uh-huh. In the office, I don't have any. I don't have any disports, um, uh, and I don't have any pra botulinum. But I did all the studies with pra, and it's very similar to Botox. We've yeah. not heard about that uh, one. No. Well, Jake and I were just pra talking botulinum. Yeah, Nucieva? No, we've no. never heard of that. Uh, it's, it's it's made in um, it's made in Korea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the company um, Evolus. Yep. licensed it from Nabota that make it in Korea. And then they've done a number of really interesting studies. Uh, and they've also done non-inferiority studies, uh, particularly in the EU, with uh, with PRA. So it's actually, it's a great product. Yeah. I think it's branded and as Botulex. It's, uh, I it's think it might be Botulex. Than, mm. It's cheaper than uh, to buy. Mm. But you know... Uh, this comes down to practice management. What do you do when you've got a brand new neuromodulator and you've got people who've been happy for years and years using the other one or yeah. one of the others? What are you going to do? You're going to say, oh, look, that one was junk. We're going to, have to move on to this. <laughs> no, you're not ever going to do that. You're going to keep the piece. So it's really going to take longer, I think, because you'll, you'll probably want to gradually introduce it to your newer patients. And that's what I would do anyway. I don't. Uh, I don't want to make anybody feel nervous about having something when they've been perfectly happy doing whatever over many years. Yeah. Happiness is good. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Xeomin? Because actually, funnily enough, Jake and I were talking about it before we went on air. Just um, going back and forth, just different ideas and feedback we've heard from various people. What's your What's your um, feedback on it? Because I think some of the like anecdotal sort of evidence that we've had coming out from people is it doesn't last as long, but maybe that's an injecting technique. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I used to think that too. I first started using Xeomin in 2004 as part of the wow. studies to get it approved. So that's a little while ago. And I used it a lot, but what I didn't realize is when it's got so much sugar in it, you know, if you looked at the vial, it's got... If you look at the Allergan Botox vial, there's this little gray haze yeah. at the bottom of the vial. That accounts for the fact that there are very many of those Botox vials that have been thrown out by the staff because they're empty. <laughs> Doesn't that make you buy Kleenex? Wow. <laughs> so 
And so if you look in the Veerman vial, uh, there's a big cake of sugar in there. It's sucrose. So what has apparently happened when they ship it is that the uh, there is oscillation, obviously, when you're loading boxes onto uh, crates and one thing or another and into airplanes. And uh, apparently what happens is that some of the uh, product gets stuck on the glass because it's very electrostatic, right? It gets stuck on the glass and it also gets stuck on the bottom of the cork. Mm. So... It actually was a, a very bright uh, dermatologist, Wayne Carey in Montreal, who figured the answer out. He took it, he put the he put the saline into the vial, which, and that's it. And then it gives the same longevity. That's hilarious. I, I didn't realize it'd be so simple. Because you know, yeah. I, you know, I speak to other injectors. I, I don't use Xeomin myself. I, years ago, I, I, in the UK, when I sort of first started injecting I used all of them just to sort of get an understanding of things and um, the people who use Xeomin a lot they they will tell me and I don't know because I haven't been trained in Xeomin in a long time that the injecting technique is slightly different I can't remember whether they said they inject more superficially or more more deep but it's one of the two so I don't know I think everyone's got their own nuances yeah I think so I inject it the same yeah as uh, as uh, with the same technique as Botox yeah. Okay, interesting. I dilute, I dilute it with one cc. I mean, it's just the same. Yeah. I use the Beckton Dickinson diabetic uh, syringe. I really like it. It, it gives. Uh, it actually spreads. I think a little bit more than uh, than Botox does. So it's particularly nice on the forehead. And well, I think it's a valid question to ask. I think a lot of people will be wondering. You are basically the inventor of Botox in inverted commas. So why? Do you still use that, but then also use another product, but you won't use um, abo botulinum toxin or disport? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I've used abo, um, and uh, it actually, I think, I've, I've wondered why I got the brow ptosis I did. Mm. And the reason, I think, is because then I read, uh, uh, then I read the papers. Uh, there actually is a slight difference in the injection technique with uh, with ABO, where the 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 procedure is the same and the head of corrugator the same, mm-hmm. but you need to move the injection site for the the um, more lateral corrugator fibers a little more medial. Okay. Because uh, I've dropped brows with uh, with this board. I think it's a great product, and I think it was my uh, my poor technique with it. See, most but people will say it's because of the spread of the various products you know traditionally mm-hmm. we, we we teach or think that disport will spread further per little drop yeah. and botox is more precise and i don't know where zeomin is in the middle but that's how we're traditionally taught but you're saying it's actually an injection technique that might be needed to be tweaked yeah because i think of the spread yeah because if you look at Ada trindade de almeida's study and also doris hexel's studies uh they looked at uh using using the lens of treating hyperhidrosis mm-hmm. so they showed the diffusion halos on yes. the forehead. And Adachandadi de Almeida's study showed there was a bigger diffusion halo with this wart than with Botox. Yes. Uh, whereas Doris Hexel's study showed there was no difference. Mm. So it's, you know, it, there's obviously technique differences there. And Ada also on one side of the forehead injected deep and on the other side injected more superficially and did not find a difference. Wow. That's interesting. 
with uh, with this sport. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, no, I think that I should um, should use uh, the Galderma product. I think uh-huh. it's a perfectly great product. I just have used the others so much more. And uh, maybe I'm lazy. But, uh, <laughs> um, you might be getting a call from a rep um, after this show gets aired. So they might be saying, hey, Jane, you said you wanted to give it a try. We're here. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, they have been on to me. Yeah. And I will use their products. Yeah, definitely. So you said you were playing around with it in 2004 with the studies. I saw Xeomin in, in 2012 in IMCAS in Paris. And now we're 2021 and it's just here in Australia. Just goes to show how long it takes for a product to be conceptualized, manufactured, tested, approved, and then distributed to all different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. It's almost a 20-year lead time. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Um, yeah. What are your insights into resistance to, let's call it botulinum toxin A, rather than a brand? It's a polarizing topic, isn't okay. it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I speak to so many people, and COVID was actually really interesting because after COVID, when we had that pent-up demand from patients for treatments, they came back and we saw squillions of people and many patients, you experienced yeah. this, I, I didn't personally, but many injector colleagues experienced that people were coming back saying, my toxin didn't work. I'm resistant. Is it is it COVID? Is mm-hmm. it me? Am I imagining things? But let's talk about maybe that aside. Just you know, normal rates of of um, people who are immune to Botox is, is that congenital, or they're inquiring it, or is there two separate categories? Oh, it's a really great question. It's very complicated. So let's make it simple. Um, Joe Jankovic was the lead author on the paper that I was an author on as well looking at 30 years worth of evidence in over 6,000 patients who had 30,000 injection sessions. And there was a a rate, over 10 indications, Mm -hmm. both cosmetic and also uh, medical, such as dystonia and blepharospasm and uh, overactive bladder, that sort of thing. So the big dose studies and also, you know, much tinier, I think the smallest unit uh, unit number of units used in a patient was 10 units and the most was several hundred in mm. the dystonia patients. So um, the bottom line was there were 27 patients who uh, had the um, persistence of the neuromodulator and it got better in a number of them. I'm just blocking on how many. I think it's about about 10 or 12 of them, it actually went away. Here's the problem. It's such a rare thing in 30 years that, uh, and there's absolutely no correlation to any of the 10 indications. There's no correlation to the dosage Mm. that has been used. And here's the other thing. There are 10 different tests to test for neutralizing antibodies. And uh, most, uh, currently, there's no standardized test. Yeah. Currently, most I gather. Currently, most of the tests are done at a lab in Europe, but I don't know which tests they're doing. I had for the first time. This is like three years ago. For the first time in all my years of injecting, I had a patient who was sent to be my an esteemed colleague here in Vancouver, um, and she had she had seen the patient who'd seen another colleague in Vancouver, and the patient had initially had her first treatment with Botox in Toronto, or a couple of treatments in Toronto. Anyway, the patient now by now had had both all three 
approved neuromodulators at that point in Canada. And so um, what to do? Because she wanted to be injected again. So I phoned up Mitchell Brim, who's the chief scientific officer for Allergan. And he said, you know, Jean, doing the neutralizing antibody test might be might be complicated. And uh, uh, maybe why don't you do the extensor digitorum brevis test? Mm. So do you know where your extensor digitorum brevis is? Because I didn't know where mine was <laughs> at that point. I said, so Mitchell, where is this muscle? And he said, well, it's on the outside of your foot. Oh, foot. All right, it's I'll show you my hand there. Of your foot. Yeah. <laughs> it's on the outside of your foot and you never knew you had it. So I took the patient down to one of our amazing neurologists here uh, who's very good with CMAPs, you know, with uh, compound muscle action potential. And so he did the CMAP for the extension digitorum brevis. I injected 20 units of Botox. And then we reconvened in two weeks. And he did, he redid the test, and it, it still was working perfectly. Mm. So from that, we deduced that there were neutralizing antibodies uh, to that the patient, and that's why to A. So we got her treated with B. I actually couldn't get Solstice Neurosciences to send even a vial up here, uh, although it's approved by Health Canada. So I sent the patient down to San Diego to uh, Dr. Sabrina Fabi, mm-hmm. who's one of my mentees, who I love. And Sabrina injected her with uh, B, and it worked perfectly. Right. So that there's the problem. But the problem with the neutralizing antibody thing is that, first of all, there's the 10 different tests. Secondly, you can have a person who has demonstrable neutralizing antibodies, and their product is still working. Thirdly, what are the neutralizing antibodies to? Are they to the heavy chain? Are they to the accessory proteins, which they used to be? Remember when there was a huge amount of of um, of this problem with high doses used with uh, treating um, treating uh, torticollis and uh, cervical dystonia. That was in 1997 when they removed Allergan removed 80 percent of the protein in the vial, mm-hmm. and then the neutralizing antibody problem went away from. 15% down to zero yeah, or nearly zero, which is what it is right now. So it's a, it's a really good question and it has no clear answer. And I've, if I had my druthers, I would love somebody to be able to put together a standardized neutralizing antibody test that everybody could use. So we knew what we were talking about, but as it stands, it's extremely, there have been, I think it's, uh, I saw a paper where there had been 3 million tests, uh, 3 million um, vials injected from Mertz with the Xeomin with zero neutralizing antibodies. Uh, I saw another product insert which showed that with Xeomin uh, and treating um, blepharospasm, there was a percentage of neutralizing antibodies. But whether that's because these patients had still had some, some re- resistance from uh, they developed when they had uh, Botox. I, I, because a lot of these people have had Botox first, right? So, in one sentence, <laughs> what uh, yeah. number or what rate do you think uh, there is of people walking around who are immune, either congenital or acquired? It's it's like infinitesimally small, is it? Yeah, it's like well, in in the study uh, which amounts to thirty thousand injections uh, and six thousand patients, 
it was a half of 1%, the total incidence. But most of that was with detruser uh, overactivity or, blef- or blepharospasm or dystonia, uh, limb dystonia. Um, cosmetic was nothing, zero in crow's feet and 0.3% in glabella. Yeah, I mean, that's still, I mean, it's small, but that would be one every two or 300 patients. But we don't see that in practice. We don't see that. We don't see that. So, yeah, it's so interesting. I think, that, I think it speaks to the fact that there's no, um, as, well, as, as good as the yardstick we have at the present moment, that's the best answer that we have, yeah. which is that it's extremely rare and there's really no correlation. And so I think if anybody wanted to study it in more detail, they would need to have a better test. Yeah. And do you agree that there, there isn't much log- logic in swapping them from a botulinum toxin A to another botulinum toxin A to another botulinum toxin A? Or do you think that there is some merit in that because of Xeomin sort of, you know, apparently is less immunogenic? Yeah. Well, it's certainly worth a try. Okay. Uh, I, I think uh, it's worth, there's nobody could say one way or the other. I think it's worth a try, though, okay. because people want to be treated. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, and then it's so much harder to get B. When E comes out, that'll be helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good point. Yes, we'll have a, yeah, and actually that's another valid reason to have another toxin on the market. We'll have a, you know, it's not botulinum toxin A, it's E, it's different. You'll just have to come yeah. every two weeks for the rest of your life instead of yeah. <laughs> every three months. <laughs> so one of the topics yeah. that uh, we've spoken about many, many times in the podcast before um, is about training for cosmetic injectables. So how about how we go about setting like a, a, like a national standard or an international standard, um, recognized uh, specialty training for this area of medicine, which, which is what it is. And then also... Who should be injecting? A properly trained person who is medical is the right person to inject. I know a lot of um, dentists are also injecting. I know that there are hairdressers injecting. I know that there's, you know, people who've been the uh, Arnie Klein's receptionist in his office. Um, used to drive around Los Angeles injecting. Uh, she had no training, wow. but she had watched Arnie. Uh, that's a good question. I, I, think that, I think that there should be uh, some kind of uh, proper training because, I mean, we have people here in uh, British Columbia that have no training or, no li- or have training and have no license and drive around injecting. I, I think that's wrong. I think that you know, when you get into trouble with injectables is when you don't have the proper sort of structure. For example, um, injecting in a hotel room. Uh, somebody flies in from another country and injects a bunch of people in a hotel room. They have no idea how to contact that person. Mm-hmm. And when they get into problems, like with necrotizing fasciitis, Somebody else has to bail the patient out. So, you know, the understanding of the anatomy is crucial. Uh, the, anatom- the understanding of the dosing is crucial. There was a case in 2004 uh, where an unfrocked osteopathic physician in Florida 
took some botulinum toxin that he had bought from a research laboratory, and the vial he read, uh, it had 100 micrograms in it, not 100 units. And so he injected some extraordinary number of millions of units into four people, one of whom happened to be himself. Oh, my God. So these, these people had botulism. They had critical botulism from facial cosmetic injections, from him being an unsought physician who didn't read the label and nearly killed four people, including himself. So, you know, the, the, uh, the ICU have to be completely commended for rescuing. That's the kind of idiocy that killed, I'm going to call it idiocy, uh, dishonesty and idiocy because he didn't want to pay the price for a vial of an approved neuromodulator. And that wrecked the business for neuromodulators in Florida for almost a year. Mm. And it made people say, I want to see you, I want to see the vial. I want to see you dilute the vial. I want to see you bring the, the because people just didn't lost trust yeah. in the injectors. So everybody pays a huge price when somebody does something that is so crazy as that. Uh, that's that's just what I think. I think that your idea of having training and licensure in it is a, a really smart idea. Yeah, I mean, we've spoken to multiple people in the industry. Sabrina's been on and multiple people, and I don't think anyone has an answer. Yeah. We, 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 we all say, well, it should be someone trained in medicine, a doctor. Um, you could argue, depending on your, your region's um, sort of uh, licensing, whether nurses can do it, but in Australia that's very popular and very safe. Um, but, yeah, I mean, having hairdressers driving around New York sounds ridiculous, uh, and yet where I'm from in the UK, it's a similar situation where, you know, it's a bit of a, a wild west. So at some point, I think we can all agree the extremes sound crazy, but how do we get to the point where we agree more? I don't know. Every country seems so different. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, every country's FDA or, or version of FDA is so different. Um, so I don't mm-hmm. think we'll ever have an international sort of certificate, but it'd be nice to have a national certificate where we can all say that seems sensible rather than just not. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that would help the regulatory agencies a lot. Yeah. And it would they stop. Have, uh, I was going to say it would stop a lot of the infighting as well, because in the absence of an overarching standard, it sort of creates confusion around what is good enough and who is good enough and who should and who shouldn't. Whereas yeah. if you've got something that's, everyone agrees to this, this is the way that we do it. These are the parameters. Then it'll stop a lot of this, you know, this sort of squabbling that Mm -hmm. goes on, I think probably in every country in different sort of factions within the industry. Yeah. But it's not a problem that'll go away because you just look at a product like this that's growing at 15% a year because more and more people are getting interested in it, particularly generation X and Y. Mm. And they, of course, uh, are having a difficulty, at least in the Canadian Canadian housing market, to buy a house. Yeah. But they're on Zoom. They're working hard. They in 2016 they overtook the boomers as the main people in the workforce, and they need to look their best. Mm. But they don't have the bucks. So there's always going to be uh, an interest in a reduced cost mm. uh, for a product. Uh, uh, in anything we do. And so I don't think cost should be the, 
the arbiter. I think it should be education and training. In your in all of your travels, and and you've obviously led research in in in, in this for a long time. Have you ever come across a country where it is very different, or or is it pretty standardised across the world how how injectables are delivered? Oh, I think it's pretty similar around the world, and and certainly I don't know about I don't know so much about uh, Russia because I I haven't sort of ever lectured there, but certainly I think everywhere else. There's a mainstream of people who are educated, who are doing a good job. And I think there's always going to be the people following along, uh, wanting to join in in the profits without having done the education and the hard work of learning it properly. I, I forgot to ask right at the start, when, when all this kicked off for you and, and the trials commenced and, and then it became branded, did you drop your ophthalmology practice or, or did you carry on? Or what I happened? did for a long time. Right. Yeah, I did for a long time until uh, I guess it was about um, 2000, I, 19, I guess I, about 10 years in, I dropped my practice, my ophthalmology practice. I mean, it's impossible to do um, all of the, all of the cosmetic work and uh, and and do all the ophthalmology things. So I gave away twenty years of patience to five pediatric ophthalmology and business colleagues here in Vancouver. So uh, that's that was interesting, just starting up a whole new practice again. Yeah, and but I'm that's all- okay. I'm curious to learn from you potentially. What what does your consultation look like with a new patient? I mean, do you do anything completely different having had all of those years' experience, or is it pretty standard for you? Oh, I do. Um, this is my new office that I just started in the pandemic. I was in a group practice before, and I could never quite get enough time. So um, it just so happened that. Uh, This office came available. It's one floor below my old office, and it's not big. Uh, So I decided, because of the pandemic, to design it around safety. And so I do everything in this office, and I hired my youngest son, Graham, uh, to be my office manager. Graham was great, by the way, liaising with us, so thank you, Graham. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, he's he's techy and he's funny. He's, uh, He's a delight to work with. Thank you for that nice comment. And so just, um, I just set it up so that Graham, uh, when they come in, they don't wait. We have no chairs in the reception area. We book them so that it's linear, so Mm -hmm. that they come in. Uh, They wait one, maybe two seconds while I give them some hand sanitizer. And then they come in and Graham takes their photos with uh, our fantastic photographic system, our Canfield and Telestudio. Mm-hmm. And then we look at them together. I've given up the whole giving people a mirror and saying, here, what do you think? <laughs> because the brain can't help itself. The brain edits what they see in the mirror. And nothing, nothing is so honest as a photograph. Agreed. So Agreed. I, can, I can blow the photographs up on the screen. We're both looking at them. And you can say, what bothers you? And that's where it comes out. We spend probably a good 10 minutes just looking at all the photographs together. And it's amazing how when they actually see the photographs, 
they're they are very clear about what they want to have done. And then because we booked them linearly, I can do all of that. Yeah. And in my old office, I was running between four rooms all the time, <laughs> maybe five. And I was keeping people waiting. And I think they maybe got pissed off at me for keeping them waiting. Yeah. In the nicest possible way. They were never never unkind or rude, but I could tell. But now they're just like, just do it. I'm here. Yeah. So we'll do everything all at once. I've got an hour. And there's nobody else asking if they can have a bit of my time. Because I don't book anything in the office hours that uh, take me out of seeing patients. That's where Graham comes in. He just said no. (laughs) (laughs) What what was the name of your photography system again? It's the Canfield Intellis Studio. All right, we have to look into that. Google that. Maybe we'll get them on. Yeah, it costs you a lot of money. But it's worth every penny. I mean, joking aside... I, I now do exactly the same, maybe a little bit more um, amateurly, but because I don't have a fancy system. But it's the photos that not you're not using them to sell, but you're using them to make the patient understand really what is going on. It's yeah, not the, it's not exactly. the nasal labial fold; it's the whole face. And yeah. it's funny, like you said, when they grab the mirror, they sort of do a bit of a pose and they do their best shot, and it's not really their reality. Whereas once yeah. you show them different angles, different expressions, they go, oh, God, I don't want to look at these photos. I don't like that. But that's their reality. <laughs> I know, they hate them. Yeah. They hate the pictures. But what they love, because this, pro- this program, is it, it, it has a compare function. So you put up the before and after. You know, they went away. They had, oh, let's say they had Botox fillers, uh, Belkyra, and microneedling of the lower, you know, lower face and neck. And then they come back in a month and you show them the change. And in two months, you show them a change. And three months, oh, that's looking, you know. So now they can really see it and they become your, they become your, your acolytes, your, your disciples. Yeah. Because it's such a difference that they can see photographically. And if you want, you can print it out for them so they can take it away with them. But largely it's in here mm-hmm. and they're perfectly delighted with it. And so then you, they send their friends, and I think it's it's really it's been that's been the best photographic system I've ever had. And I'm it, I have to tell you a funny story about Graham because when it arrived, it was uh, August of last year, and I phoned up New Jersey, and I said, "So it's arrived. Thank you very much. We've got five enormous heavy boxes here. Uh, when are you sending the text?" <laughs> and they said. No tech. I said, oh. They said, yes, COVID. We can't send anybody. Mm. I said, okay. And then Graham was cruising by at that moment, and he said, well, you know, Mom, I'm pretty good at Ikea. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. he set it up. Brilliant. He set up this whole thing, and there's all these warning notices on it, not to be set up except for a Canfield registered tech. So between Canfield with Zoom and Graham with his enormous strength, but also his techiness, he set it all up. Amazing. So it was. Uh, it was just amazing. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a real triumph. Um, but that's uh, that's that's how that's how techy and how great he is. So plug for Graham. Now you're probably the most, or if not one of the most experienced injectors of uh, Botox or botulinum toxin in the world. 
And I'm sure you've had many lessons that you've learned over the years and tips that you've sort of created from trial and error. So for all the people that are listening to this episode are probably going to want to know, you know, what can, what can Jean teach us from all of her years of experience? So anything that you want to sort of impart on our audience in terms of tips for avoiding complications, how to deal with tricky patients, anything sort of technical, technically in terms of depth and dose or anything like that? Oh, yeah. The, I think the main thing is to find out what the patient really wants. That's Sometimes they're very clear. Actors and actresses are extremely clear. This is exactly what I want. Mm. Athletes are very clear. But some people aren't so clear. So trying to understand exactly what a person wants and trying to avoid trouble by seeing the person who has deep horizontal forehead lines and low brows, that's a big, that's a big one to, um, to stage your injections. Uh, don't ever touch their frontalis until you've, we can see them back in two weeks. I usually see most people back in a couple of weeks. I think around the mouth, uh, not doing too much because if you look at the literature, I mean, I usually use, uh, a unit each quadrant in the mouth after our, we did this 90 woman dose ranging study. Um, we compared filler, Juvederm, Botox alone, Juvederm alone, and then the combination, combination one, hands down. Mm. So I think doing enough areas, do the whole upper face, don't just do part of it. Do, uh, unless they have brautosis, um, Around the mouth, do the combination, fillers and neuromodulators. Don't be afraid to learn how to do treat the platysma. Uh, don't be afraid to do combination treatments. I think people want more rather than just monotherapy. But I think the main thing is to understand your patient and their concerns and to try and uh, make them feel really comfortable with your knowledge. And if you don't have any knowledge, you've got to go and read the literature <laughs> and get the knowledge. <laughs> Jean, just to um, follow on just from what you were saying, we had one, well, we had lots of questions, but I think we've answered most of them. But one specific one, just to follow on from your uh, thing about around the mouth, uh, this is from Naomi Wilmot. Yeah, in Perth, in Australia. Yep. Yeah. And she asks, how do you inject the DAO? Because she's been told two different things, high and low or deep and superficial. <laughs> that doesn't quite make sense to me. But how do you do yeah. your DAOs? Well, I, I have to make an apology to everyone because my first paper, I wrote about it. I actually injected here. Okay, so. And that is that is uh, what I did initially. And that's what a lot of people still do. So sorry, just to say, because the listeners can't see, you're pointing sort of closer to the oral commissure. Oh. Yes, I'm, I'm sort of like uh, three millimeters lateral to the oral commissure and about eight millimeters down. Yes. But then I started getting in some people, I, I realized after a while, some people have a different kind of anatomy down here. Mm -hmm. And they've got their depressor labia inferioris is actually more lateral. Yeah. So when you inject there, you get depressor labia, which pushes, then their lower lip is like this. So if they, want to speak on the phone or <laughs> um, have a conversation, they've got to pull their lip down for about several months. So now I go uh, to the anterior border of masseter mm -hmm. and I inject 
just anterior to the anterior border of master, you could feel the antagonal notch there. Yeah. And people say, well, why on earth would you do that? But what it does is it gets into depressor, it gets into depressor anguli oris without getting into depressor baby. Yeah. And do you come so, with your needle uh, sort of flush to the skin or are you going perpendicular to the skin? I just go perpendicular. And how many but then units? the other thing I often do is also inject along underneath and the, uh, the putisma posterior to that, both above, both above the jawline and below. Okay, it's a wonderful way to crisp up the jawline. Yeah, and how many units might you use just for the DAO? Just a final question. I usually use five. Five. Okay, that's a pretty mm-hmm. decent dose. Yeah. Well. I think that wraps things up. Yeah. We've kept you for way too long. This has been, uh, f- well, for me personally, uh, a oh, massive too, yeah. honor to, to talk to sort of the queen of Botox. That's what I'm going to call you from now on. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I could talk to you for hours, so maybe we'll keep in contact if that's okay and we'll have more discussions. But uh, oh. thank you so much for your time. Um, we really appreciate yeah, it and, and we hope that things get a bit better in Canada for you from a COVID situation. Yeah. Thank you. We'd like to be like you are in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we let you go, and I know you're not a probably not a huge social media person, and I'm sure you've got more than enough patients and you know what to do with, but for anyone that wants to reach out and maybe one of the listeners who's a medical professional or uh, wants to ask you a question or any potential patients, what's the best way for them to, to find you, follow your work, or get in contact? Well, they can uh, follow me on Instagram at Carruthers Cosmetics, yep. uh, and they can ask questions there. Or the best way really is to send us an email, mm-hmm. uh, info at carotherscosmetics.com. Fantastic. And uh, so, um, yeah, we'll love to have questions. That would be great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jean. Well, hopefully one day when the skies open, we can catch up and have a proper in-person conversation. That'd be great. And I can bug <laughs> you of all my questions that I haven't asked you yet on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, it's a great honor and you ask wonderful questions and I... I've learned so much from both of you as well. Thank you. Thank you. You're an inspiration. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests. 